You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon by Daniel Mason. Good morning again, and uh, I am really excited uh, this morning to introduce to you our guest speaker. Uh, He happens to have the same last name as I do, which is uh, wonderful. Daniel uh, Mason is... uh, of course, he was here when we started the church as a young man, and uh, he graduated from Georgia and is now in seminary. Uh, is in his third year of what will be a four-year program, and uh, he's back for the holidays, wants to come and share with us. We're really excited uh, to hear from him. So, Daniel, come on up, and let's give him a great big hand. Thanks, Pop. Thanks, everybody. Love you. Woo. Good morning. Um, can you pray with me real quick? Uh, Jesus, we welcome you. We welcome your presence. God, thank you for a new year. Uh, We pray as we go into this year that you would give us your vision, uh, your desires, your heart for us as a church. We pray for that in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, welcome. Happy New Year. Um, as we're going into the New Year, this, I, I tend to get asked to preach right around this time of the year uh, to give mom and dad a little bit of a break. And um, it's always a great and terrible thing because normally uh, we, we don't have a sermon series around this time. Uh, and, and that's a cool thing because they basically, literally, I, I get a call uh, right in the middle of finals. It, it always happens. Uh, I get a call right in the middle of finals or a text hey, you want to preach on New Year's or you want to preach uh, on the week that we're taking off? And, and of course, I say yes. Uh, and then, of course, I, I say, is there anything I need to preach on? And then, of course, they say, no, it's all up to you. Um, and that's a great thing on the one hand because it's like all up to me, but that's also a terrible thing because it's all up to me and there's no direction whatsoever. So um, that involves a lot of prayer and discernment. Um, and, and as I was praying for, and, and I, I realized we were, uh, I was going to be preaching on New Year's Day, uh, and I was, or New Year's Eve, and I was praying what the Lord had for us uh, this year, what the Lord wanted to speak to us as, as we're entering into a new year, and the word that came up was revival. Uh, that was the word that, that kept coming up, that this was a year um, of revival, and, and, and much more importantly, I also was, was thinking about and had in my heart that next week we're going to be celebrating 10 years of what God has been doing, uh, 10 long years uh, of God being faithful and moving in incredible ways, and in a lot of ways giving us a lot of revival moments here at this church over the last 10 years. And so as I was praying, um, what I really felt the Lord was leading me to talk about today was how to take the difference between and also how to take a moment of revival and turn it into a movement of revival, uh, as, as we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, as we're entering into a new year all at the same time, how do you take some incredible moments God has given us, uh, moments of miraculous and spectacular and supernatural and God-filled action, and turn it into a long-lasting, enduring movement of the Holy Spirit and the difference between those two. So what I want to do today, I want to dive into, first and foremost, the difference between those two things, a moment of revival and a movement of it. And then I want to just dive in. We're going to be diving into Romans 12, uh, 1 through 12, and we're just going to be looking at what a church that really commits to revival looks like. Um, so if, if you've got your Bibles on, you just be, be ready for Romans 12, 1 through 12. Uh, but before we go into there, before we dive into the scripture, I, I want to just note the difference 
uh, between a moment of revival and a movement of it. Um, this is really embodied in the book of Acts. See, a, a moment of revival is like Pentecost, when God comes down in Pentecost and the Holy Spirit's given to believers, it's a moment where God does something miraculous, supernatural, powerful, dynamic, uh, something that could only be God. It's that moment when everyone starts speaking in tongues and when the sermon gets preached and it's so powerful and moving that thousands of people get saved. It's that moment when, when you have that incredibly powerful worship event, that song comes on that you need and every, all of a sudden everyone's crying and being moved and if you're charismatic and crazy like some of us in this room are, people start falling out and speaking in tongues and doing all the crazy crap, that is a moment of revival. Um, that is a moment of revival. These really dramatic, hyper-spiritual moments when God comes down and does something crazy. And they're beautiful and they're wonderful, and God does them because he wants to prove that he's still present. But, but that's not a movement of revival. See, the movement of revival is what Acts is really all about. It's what you do with those moments See, that crazy moment happens. Uh, Peter preaches that sermon, and everyone all of a sudden is speaking in everyone's different language, and thousands of people come to know Jesus, and then the persecution hits. And then they get dispersed out. And in the midst of this dispersal and persecution, the church continues to expand and continues to grow and continues to eventually dominate the Roman Empire. That is a movement of revival. It's when the moment of revival is long gone, and the church chooses to continue to remember it and to continue to be faithful to it and to continue to endure and persevere on in faithfulness to the Lord long after the moment of revival is gone. That's what separates a movement of revival from a moment. And, and, and then really this year, I, I feel like the Lord, especially as we're, we're diving into a whole decade of his movement, I, I feel like the call upon our lives as a church now is to take the moments of revival God has given us and really turn it into a movement. Not that it hasn't been before, but to really solidify that identity as our vision. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, I think a really good glimpse of it is given to us in Romans 12, in the first 12 verses of Romans 12. Paul's talking to the church in Rome, a church that's been going through a lot and been through a lot and has developed a lot. And he's saying, here is what it looks like to take that revival moment and turn it into a movement. So if you'll turn with me, I'm just going to read through it real quick. Romans 12, 1 through 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind that so in Christ Jesus, so that in your testing time and your discerning time, you may be able to know what is the will of God, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. I'm going to stop right there. Something that's really important is that we, we understand we, we don't be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world. The first step in that, that vision, in that movement of taking a moment and turning into a movement is not being conformed anymore to the patterns of this world and being transformed, renewing your mind in Christ Jesus. And as an anthropology-like back, background dude, I've got a degree in anthropology. Some, one of my professors in this, is in this room, one of my anthro professors. I love you. Uh, Don Nelson, you're the man. God bless you uh, for putting up with me. Um, one of the things that we hear when we think about patterns of this world, you can't help but think of your culture and your history and your background. There are things uh, in our culture, there are things in our history, there are things in our identity uh, that sometimes make us blind and a lot of times make us 
blindly sinful or blindly ignorant of where and how God is calling us into. And what Paul is saying in this moment is, hey, those patterns of your world, those mindsets, those backgrounds, be aware of them, identify them, name them, and in Christ, renew yourself to know where those are good and also where those can often lead you into sin. So I want to take a moment for us personally and identify one of those patterns, just one, but one of those patterns in the American church that has continued since our founding that often leads us into sin, and that is uh, the act of ignoring the sojourn of God or, or rejecting the sojourn of God for comfort, choosing comfort over the sojourn. Uh, when we were founded, we all know the story of Thanksgiving. Uh, we were founded in part uh, by Puritans who uh, traveled across the ocean and founded the Plymouth Plantation. There's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of history. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful identity that goes into that uh, identity of these Puritans, this Christian church. They were a Christian church movement that came across the seas to found us. But they, as they were traveling over, they took on a name. And it's a really interesting name they chose to take. They called themselves pilgrims. And we're really familiar with, with calling these our, our first uh, really uh, American church ancestors pilgrims. But it's an ironic name. In some ways it's fitting, but in some ways it was really ironic that they chose that. See, the word pilgrim, it, it involves this word in the Bible, sojourning. And sojourning is a really loaded word in, in biblical text. It's this traveling, but it's not just a journey or, or a travel that you go on. It's a specific kind. It's going from a place of comfort, a place that you consider your home, and going into and through terrible struggles. It's, it's leaving comfort, going into terrible discomfort for the sake of something that God has promised you, for the sake of a promised land. That's what a sojourn is. The, the image that comes up when you talk about sojourn in scripture is Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights only so that he can be confronted by Satan so that he can be prepared for ministry. It's the people of Israel traveling for 40 years going circles in the desert as they're refined in preparation for the promised land. It's this rough word. It's this nasty word. It's this word that, that involves going into and through the suffering, not away from it. It is the most uncomfortable word almost in the entire Bible. I would go, go ahead and say that. It's an uncomfortable thing. And yet the pilgrims, the, these Puritans, when they, when they came over, they were leaving religious persecution. It's an irony. And, and they did, and I don't want to take this moment to like just bash American history or the American church. That's not what the goal is. They, they were facing a lot of uncertainty, and they did face an, a, incredible difficulties when they came over. So in some ways, it was an appropriate name, but it was ironic because they were leaving the persecution, not heading towards it or into it. And that tradition, that history has stayed with us today. You can see it most often in, in the evangelical Christian movement itself, uh, in church history, in our history as, as Protestant evangelical Christians. That's, that's what we are. Sorry, this isn't meant to be a church history session. It's, it is a sermon, I promise, but we're getting somewhere with it. In our history, as evangelical Christians, the evangelical movement began in the 1700s. It lasted for just under 100 years, just under a century, and it stopped. Uh, it was filled with immense revival. Tons of people of all races, all backgrounds, all genders, and all classes coming to know the Lord. It was unprecedented in Western history. 
It was amazing. All these people coming to the Lord, know the Lord, intense acts of God, movements like no one had ever seen before. And it stopped right around the time of the Revolutionary War, just after it, around 1780 is when people say it really stopped as a movement. It really lost its power. And it stopped at the same time because the churches that were a part of this movement all around the same time felt a very clear call from God, their leadership, their congregational leaders, all felt at the exact same time, around the exact same year, that God was calling them to join in the abolition movement. They felt this need to rid America of, of the sin of slavery. They all, the Methodist and Baptist uh, congregations, all, all their leadership said this was an abomination before the Lord. We have to get rid of it or it will lead our, our country into further sin and disruption and, and disaster. They were prophesying and, feel, and, and praying and feeling this impending need, this impressing need to rid their nation of slavery regardless of the cost. And as they made these commitments... They were immediately, literally within, within 48 hours, uh, encountered immense resistance, not just from uh, the people around them, persecution and, and in, in jailing and abuse from uh, people who weren't Christians or weren't a part of their church movements, but they actually saw the most resistance from people who were a part of their churches, who resisted and said, if you do this, we'll break the church. And the response, to, to summarize a, a lot of messy history, their response was to very, very quickly back off and back away. And what historians said happened, they said it was amazing. Within less than, a, than 10 years, all the revivalist movements died. The churches themselves sort of solidified in number. They became a part of the culture. They became very comfortable. They became, the word that they used, one, one uh, writer used, they became very respectable in their culture, but they lost all of their supernatural power and the immense revivals, the ridiculous amount of people coming to know the Lord, the dynamic acts of sacrificial love, those pretty much died overnight. And so just before it could become a century filled with revival, uh, the evangelical movement was stifled. And Praise God, it wasn't completely ended. We're still here today. Uh, but the American church, even in its short, it's only been around for 100 years, but even in just the few hundred years, it's been a history filled with incredible moments of revival. Very few movements, though, of revival. And those few movements have over and over again been stifled by this choice of comfort, of security, of peace, instead of the sojourn instead of moving into and persevering through the mess and the brokenness and the chaos and the dispersion that we see in Acts of a revival movement. And part of our call is we renew our minds as we refuse to conform to the patterns of this world. We have to recognize where we come from. We have to recognize the patterns of the world that we have to not conform to. And part of this sojourn, I just believe, for our year and also for our destiny as Classic City, if we're really to take up the Lord on everything he's offering us, it's going to mean no longer conforming to that comfort, embracing that sojourn, going into and persevering through the sojourn and the desert land and the struggle. And it's hard, but it's beautiful, and it's worth it. 
So I'm going to keep going through Romans 12. This is how Paul talks about what happens when we, when we do live into that, when we enter into that sojourn. As we enter in. This is verse 3, Romans 12, verse 3. We're going to verse 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone amongst you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned to you. For as in one body we have many members, and in the many members they don't have the same function. So we too are one body in Christ, but our individual members, we are one of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Then let's use them. If you've given the gift of prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. If in service with your serving, to the one who teaches in his, in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in your exhortation, to the one who contributes in your generosity, to the one who leads, do it with zeal. And to the one who acts in mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affections. Outdo one another in showing honor to, one, to each other. Don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in your spirit. Serve the Lord. And then he comes to this climax. He's describing all these beautiful things that come when you begin to embrace the sojourn. He gets to his big climax in Romans 12, 12, and he says this. Be joyful in hope. Endure through suffering. And be faithful in prayer. That's what it all comes down to. What the revival movement comes down to is a Christian community who as individuals and as a group commit to being joyful in hope, even in the hopeless places, which you will be called to, who endure through the sufferings of this world, which you will be called to, who are faithful in prayer, who invite God into the godless places of their world, which you will inevitably be called to. It's the sojourn. And that is really my, my prayer and, and what I really believe God is speaking to us in this year. At, at the start of our 10th year of being, at, at the start of a new decade for us, a new season, in, regard, in light of the incredible revival moments he's given us over the last 10 years, as we enter into what, what I pray will be a revival movement, something that will endure, something that will last, something that's eternal, I know my dad, before, when he's preached about his hopes and his dreams for Classic City, he used to, he always says, I pray that this will be a church. In, in, in Athens, there's a tendency, churches don't last normally more than 20 years. That's about the average church life in Athens uh, before they start to die. And, and I know his one prayer that, that he used to share with us as we were doing this was that this would be a church that would still be around when my kids were in college. That this would be a church that's still around 100 years from now. Still alive, still active, still thriving, and I really do believe that's God's vision for us. If we enter in a revival movement for our church, we have to embrace the sojourn, and in doing so, learn to be joyful in hope, enduring in suffering, and faithful in prayer. So today, I just want to end by, by diving into what that looks like, to be joyful in hope, enduring in suffering, and faithful in prayer in the hopeless, death-filled, dark, godless places we will inevitably be called to as we sojourn. So first, being joyful in hope. And, and I want to say, begin by talking about joy and, and hope. I, I want to just begin by saying something that's been said from this pulpit a hundred times over. Joy and ho- happiness are completely different things. Uh, happiness is a smile of compliance. Joy is a smile of defiance. 
happiness is when you comply to your situations. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being happy. But it's circumstantial. It's embracing the circumstance. And if you choose to only smile or to only keep going because of your happiness, because of your comfort, because of your circumstances, you will inevitably just comply to the world. You'll, you'll end up choosing what has been chosen so many times before comfort over the sojourn. The call to joy is something completely different. It is defiant. It, in the face, it acknowledges uh, Ephesians 6. It acknowledges that our world is run by powers, principalities, the forces of evil, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It acknowledges how dark and how brutal and how broken our world is. It acknowledges the endless cycle of sin we find ourselves caught in. But it keeps going in spite of it. That's what joy is. It's dwelling in heaven even when you're living in hell. That's what joy is. It's, it's like Moses. It's, and if we really sojourn like God is calling us to, it's going to end up being like Moses. We're going to be called back to Egypt, back to the one place you don't want to go. The one place where you almost died. The one place where they're out to kill you. You're going to be called right back into it. And even in your preparation, you're going to almost die because you aren't really prepared and your wife's going to save your life or your spouse is going to save your life. In the preparation, you're going to finally get there and again and again and again, you're going to go into a spiritual war. And again and again and again, you're going to think you've won. And right as you're walking out of the place you've been enslaved to, you're going to be told, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's what it means to sojourn in hope. You just keep going. Even when your hope is beaten down, even when it's tr stretched, even when it's crushed, you keep going. That's the sojourn. That's the hope. Because you know one day you will finally be free. But you know that even after you're freed, you're going to get to the Red Sea and all of a sudden you're going to look behind you and that thing you thought you were done with is coming back and it's brought an army behind it. And there's no escape. And you're going to have to hope, like it says in Romans later, you have to hope beyond hope. And that's the only thing that's going to part that Red Sea. You have to hope that Hebrews is right when it says we look to a city whose author and builder is God, that we are looking not towards this world but towards heaven, and it's coming towards us. We're not just waiting for it, it's coming towards us. That's what it means to be joyful in hope. You become an unstoppable force because no matter how cyclical the sin, no matter how broken, no matter how dark the world is, you just keep going. You keep smiling in defiance, knowing that this is not your home. That's what it means to sojourn, being joyful in hope. And not only that, we learn to be enduring in suffering. The reality of this world in Ecclesiastes, it says, meaningless is meaningless, 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 everything is meaningless. Nothing is new under the sun. That's how Ecclesiastes begins, and it's pretty much how it ends. Uh, <laughs> but the, the best translation of that, I think, personally, you can, you can argue translations, but when you, when you study Hebrew, the word is not meaningless. The word they actually use is a vapor. A vapor, a vapor. Everything's just a vapor, and nothing endures. Nothing lasts under the sun. Everything dies. That's the... That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. In, in light of death, everything is pointless. But the beauty of that, uh, the truth of that is that Jesus, even before he went to Golgotha, before he died, he said this, hey, if they treated your master this way, they will treat you this way. If I suffered, so will you. But, it's one of the greatest buts in scripture, but take heart, I have 
overcome the world. And the reality is that, it, like it says in Ephesians, the, the supernatural resurrection power that rose Christ from the dead, it dwells now in us. This world is filled with death. It is just a vapor. You can't hold on to it. You can't grab hold to it. It is meaningless if it's the end, but it's not. Because Jesus and that same resurrection power dwells inside of you. So no matter what comes your way, no matter how much death, no matter how much darkness, no matter how, how much fear comes your way, we can endure it. We endure. We become immovable objects because no matter how much death comes our way as Christians, we know This world is not our hope. Jesus is our eternal reward. And because of that, no matter what comes our way, death can't make us afraid. It can't make us bitter. It can't paralyze us. Circumstances of this world can never paralyze us. We endure. We're not unaffected, but we are unmoved. That's what it means to endure through the suffering as we sojourn. You become an unstoppable force of hope. You become an immovable object of love. But most importantly, in some ways, most importantly, in some ways not. You learn what it means to be faithful in prayer. We're ceaseless in prayer. And I want to just clarify what Paul is talking about when he says that. See, see, prayer isn't just, I think a lot of times we, we define it as talking with God. And that's a great definition, a conversation with God, but it's, it's more than that. It's deeper. It's just an interaction. It's a welcoming of the Holy Spirit into your circumstances, into your place. It goes beyond words. And that's something really special. See, it, it means that when we do praise and worship, that's prayer. You're welcoming God into your circumstances. There's a, a, a phrase, if you ever go to a synagogue service, it, it's... Um, the, the kind of Jewish services that, that we model our churches after, it's a really fun thing because they get up for, for worship pretty much the same exact way we do. But then instead of saying, it's time to praise and worship, join us in singing, they say, it's time for prayer. Everyone get ready. And then they begin singing. See, the, they realize the prayer, the, re, the prayer is in the music. When we do praise and worship, it's praise and worship because you're inviting God in. One of the reasons why a lot of times we talk about how important it is to actually sing, to actually worship, to actually get emotionally and physically even involved in the song. It's not because we want everyone to join in and just kind of be together. That's sweet and that's great. But the reason we, we invite everyone to participate in praise and worship is because it's an intimate opportunity to pray with music, with God, to let him fill up your space and your time and your place and meet you where you are and change you. It's prayer. Those, those talks you have in the morning or at night or, or when you're alone in yourself, that decision making, when you involve Jesus in it, that becomes an intimate prayer. Even in the silence, so many times in the Psalms it says, be still and know that I am God. Listen for my voice. Even in the stillness, wordless spaces of your life or the moments that are wordless in your life, those can be, they're not, they don't have to be, but they can become prayer if you are inviting God in. And so what it means to be faithful in prayer is just to be constantly aware, constantly inviting, constantly invoking God into your places and your spaces to move as he would and he will. And yes, it also means interceding. It means 
praying. It means talking with God. And it means calling him out on his promises. It means meeting as a group and calling down heaven because he promises to do so when we call upon his name. Yes, it also means constantly interceding, faithfully interceding. But when Paul says being faithful in prayer, what he's saying is this, involve, what the Holy Spirit is saying through him in that moment is this, involve me in your places and your spaces. Invite me into the godless places of your world because I promise to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you ask or even what you can imagine. And that is what it means when we sojourn. That's what it means to be a part of a revival movement. It means we choose not only to recognize the moments when God does something amazing, but we keep going long after those moments are memories. It means that we no longer conform to the patterns of our world. We are transformed in the renewing of our minds. We don't settle for comfort. We sojourn. We enter into it. We embrace it knowing that that's going to happen. But it means in the midst of that, we persevere and we even overcome. And we watch God do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could even ask or imagine because we become unstoppable forces of hope. In the midst of our world, we endure even in the midst of its death. And we involve God, we welcome him in even to the places where it seems like he's absolutely void. He's not even present. And as we do, as we enter into that sojourn, we watch him transform it. We watch him take the moment of his faithfulness and turn it into a movement, an eternal movement of his transformational power in our world. That's what it means. I, I want to leave you all, I, I just want to pray with you all very, very quickly. I just want to pray that, that, that inspiration, Romans 5, 1 through 5, uh, with you all. Because uh, I think it, it just really gives an, an, an image and a, and a calling to uh, what we're doing. Uh, so if you all would just bow your heads, I just want to pray that over us as we enter in this new year. Lord, since we have been justified by faith, we know this year, even through the trials, we will have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom by faith we have gained access, and we pray more will gain access by faith and in the grace in which we will stand and we will boast. We pray that we will boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we pray that we would glory in our sufferings when they come. We pray we would glory even in our sufferings. And we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Our perseverance would produce character in us and our character would produce hope in us. And our hope Jesus, we know, will not put us to shame. For the Holy Spirit of God has not just been given, has not just been portioned, but has been poured out over us, and we pray it would continue to be poured out over us as we believe. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.